This is Creator Talks episode 12 with Zach Kaplan. Welcome to Creative Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. My guest on this show is writer Zach Kaplan. Now, Zach Kaplan may not be a name you're familiar with in the world of comic book authors. Well, we're going to fix that on this show. It might be because his first comic book debuted last year that you're not familiar with his name. What you should be familiar with is Image Comics and Top Cow Comics. Well, he's the author of the hit series Eclipse, which is published by Image Comics. The issue went back for a second printing, and the miniseries was given the nod to continue on as an ongoing series. The first four issues of Eclipse have been collected as a trade paperback and goes on sale on February 15th at comic shops everywhere. So if you missed one of the first four issues, or you want to start the series before issue number five comes out in March, this is a brief description of the ongoing gritty sci-fi horror series Eclipse, according to Image. In the near future, a mysterious solar event has transformed the sun's light into deadly emolting rays. The world's few survivors now live in nocturnal cities, unable to survive the daylight hours outdoors. But a killer has emerged who uses sunlight to burn his victims, and when he targets the daughter of a solar power mogul, it falls to a disillusioned solar engineer to protect her. Now, if that doesn't hook you, how about this? The art is by Giovanni Timpano, an Italian comic book artist. Giovanni's credits include The Lone Ranger Green Hornet Timo for Dynamite Comics, Cyberforce for Top Cow, G.I. Joe for IDW, and many other series. So in this interview, Zach and I talk about Eclipse, his career as a screenwriter, and poker. And so without further ado, here now is my interview with writer Zach Kaplan on Creator Talks. Zach, welcome to Creator Talks. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me. You've got like the breakout hit of the year with Image. Well, from 2016, right? I, gee, thank you so much. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to get ahead about myself or anything. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's done well. I don't know if I'm. I don't know. Uh, there's so many stuff I like from Image, so I don't know. But yeah, it's Eclipse has had a great debut for sure. Um, and, uh, it's, and it's also my first, uh, my first comic book. So, uh, it's, it's, it's been, uh, a real surreal ride considering, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been received well. It's a great start for your first comic. I mean, it's an amazing start. It's a post-apocalyptic story. Uh, it's pretty easy to get into. I mean, from page one, you pretty much lay out the scenario, the kind of world that humans are living in, in this post-apocalyptic landscape. Uh, where the yeah. sun is deadly and can burn the flesh off you if the sun touches you, hits you. Uh, you have to be they, – they, well, I'll let you summarize it, but I'm, I'm getting ahead. But please No, you're doing a great job. You can, you can go <laughs> pitch it for me. Uh, I, I've read the book. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a world where the sun will burn you alive if you go outside. And uh, I always uh, you know, say that it's inspired by a hot day and then fill in the blank because pretty much I think anywhere in the – in the U.S. of the world, uh, people have more and more of a antagonistic relationship with the sun. And I don't think it was like that a hundred years ago. I think you know, you go out now and you're like, "Man, I'm gonna get burnt. I'm gonna get uh, uh, skin cancer if I just keep going out." And so uh, the sun is not always uh, our friend. So and then uh, so there's this world, and society's flipped, and uh, it's a little dystopian in that regard. And uh, there's a surviving city in New York, and people are 
uh, making ends meet by working at night and sleeping during the day. And then suddenly there's a killer going around and he's killing people using sunlight and it's up to our hero to stop him, save the day. And tell us about the hero, David Baxter. We're learning more about him as the series goes along and you're filling in a lot of his backstory. But tell us something about him and about the suits that they have to wear when they go outside. Yeah, they. Uh, I'll start with the suits. That's an easy one. There's uh, They've developed these suits. They call them Icemen because they're basically using NO2 gas that flows through the suit to uh, cool uh, the gas, uh, cool the, the suit. The gas is super cold. And it's basically a way for people to go out in a limited uh, amount of time. These suits are cumbersome. They're bulky. Moving around in them is like moving around you know, on the moon or on an alien planet. And we were kind of going for that. We wanted the suits to, to make it feel like daytime on Earth was an alien landscape. Um, but they use these suits. Uh, there's a, a group of uh, workers that go out during the day to to fix and maintain the infrastructure. They're, they're blue-collar guys, and they fix uh, cables and electric stuff and whatever needs fixing when, when things break. And uh, one of these guys is uh, David Baxter, and um, yeah, he's a former uh, firefighter, and he was a hero. And uh, he was... Uh, kind of a first responder. He was a guy that uh, answered a call on the day of the, of the, there was a, like a solar cataclysm, they call it the flare. And uh, he, he responded to help the city, but he paid the the price and he had a tragedy uh, in his uh, life. And so it's caused him to be very closed off. And um, he's not really interested in, uh, standing up and trying to protect others or, or uh, do the right thing. He's kind of uh, reclusive and withdrawn emotionally. He doesn't want to connect. And um, that's where we meet him in the very beginning. And then, of course, he's he's pulled into, uh, into this uh, thriller with this killer. That's right. It's a sci-fi murder mystery uh, with, a, with a killer who uh, apparently is impervious to this uh, deadly sunlight. And um, I just want to add, too, I love the name of what they call the men in the suits, the Icemen. Kind of a throwback name, in a way, to the old days of the Icemen who came around and put ice in your refrigerator. Yeah, I mean, the, it, you know, you you want to talk about how, as a creator, you're, you're faced with design details and, and what you want to convey. And, you know, at first we were like, okay, are these suits going to be super cool and super badass? And no, at the end of the day, what was actually most important to convey was the suits needed to make us feel like that. There had to be an astronaut kind of feel to it like they were uh, on an alien environment. And so instead, we, we tried to make them bulkier. And uh, when Giovanni, the artist, and I were designing them, that was the emphasis. And so then, you know, it, it translates into making you think about those kinds of things and, and feel that way. I, that's my favorite kind of sci-fi is to do something that's grounded where one thing is changed, but that then so much of the rest of the world feels like our world. And, and that makes it, I think, more, uh, it's easier to connect to that story and kind of go, wow, well, that's there's this one major thing that's different. The sun is different, but but not much else. And, and so that it makes it, I don't know, there's something about that that allows, I think, readers to connect to it more. 
Tell me about how you came up with the idea because I, I found it interesting that, you know, it's in the it's in something everyday and ordinary that you experienced that led to this big idea. Yeah. Uh, I was a poker dealer and I was uh, working a graveyard shift. And so I would drive home at sunrise and I would be driving home and there'd be empty streets and, uh, you know, it was just me and the sun. And that was the, the kernel thinking about being out in the streets and no one is out. Why is everyone gone and are they hiding? And what if that was the world? What if, what if as the day continued, everyone was holed up in their, inside their homes and, and buildings and they, they were unable to go outside and, and I was outside. I was the only one outside and that kind of was the, the, the germination for the idea and it kind of it, it rolled from there. What's interesting though is in coming up with that idea, I didn't realize when I was designing the story that I was also putting in a sense of isolation and disconnection that I actually had been experiencing working a graveyard shift. And that was subconscious at the time. But now when I look back on it, I'm like, oh, I, the character is working the equivalent of a graveyard shift, but it's a daytime shift because society has flipped and become nocturnal. But he's disconnected. When he goes home and go, is preparing to go to sleep at night, everyone else is waking up to, to, to go about their nighttime experience. And, and so anyway, kind of living that, that – um, that wrong shift was something I was experiencing firsthand when I came up with the story. And that was as a dealer in Vegas? Uh, no, it was actually here in Los Angeles. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah, there's a ton of uh, casinos and a lot of poker and, and stuff that's played here in L.A. A lot of people don't know that. I think even, if I recall, there's more poker played in Los Angeles than all of Nevada and New Jersey combined, Atlantic oh, City. Vegas. Yeah, there's a ton of it. And uh, especially back in it, when I uh, when I was doing it back then uh, a few years ago, so uh, so yeah, I was uh, it, right here in Los Angeles. The artist in the series, Giovanni Timpano, he's killing it. I mean, yes, I've read his books with his artwork before this series, and he has really stepped up his game. I've seen just a progression of where he's gotten better and better with each issue. Yeah, I mean. I didn't know how lucky I was, Chris, getting Giovanni because I'm. This is my first book, so you know I, I get into it, and and he comes on board, and I'm like, okay, here's the artist, and I don't know what it was. I mean, I certainly was approaching the project with a ton of excitement, and and this was a passion project for me, so I poured my heart into it, and I very easily could have gotten an artist that was like, hey, this is number. 22 for me so i'm just gonna phone it in and give you some art and i'm moving on but giovanni he loves sci-fi he had been working on lots of uh other people's ip like um uh he did the shadow and lone ranger and i think he did some gi joe or transformers some great stuff mm -hmm. mind you but it was all a previous of oh, someone else's world and so then he got a chance to come in here and create his own world and he just he poured his heart right back into it and um he was he was he he is killing it i mean he's just a phenomenal artist every issue gets better and better we're working on the second arc right now five through eight if the art wasn't good enough in the first issue i mean he's he's in full stride and he's just he's just killing it so yeah he any he and I have made a really um, 
we make a good team. You know, we're we're uh, he lives in Italy, so uh, all of our collaboration is electronic over uh, Skype or over emails. But we uh, we have a lot of exhaustive conversations talking about the story and the world, and uh, it's a real collaboration. He's been great. And how has the communication been over this series? Has it? I'm sure it has improved, but in what ways has it changed from the first issue to the last issue that you published? Oh yeah, I mean, it's second nature now. And I mean, when you, when I, we first get in there, there's definitely, I think, which is probably typical of most relationships. There's we're feeling each other out. Uh, we're gaining trust, you know. So in the beginning, I'm I'm giving notes. And then I start to realize, well, wait a minute, I'm giving notes that he's already doing, you know what I mean? For like, there's a process where the artist will submit layouts and then he submits pencils and then he submits inks. And so early on, I would point out like, and by the way, don't forget that this is going to be a, a component uh, when you get to the pencils or when you get to the inks. But it came to realize that was a waste of time. I mean, we were, we became very simpatico and we would really, uh, start to understand each other and, and he just started to to know and so much so that at this point in the game even when I'm writing the scripts I'll give him a lot more freedom in the scripts I mean I'll say well this is five to six panels but this panel you could break up and this panel you could move to the next page I mean he understands the flow and I I personally found it very freeing to give him more control uh, over what's happening because it, it allows him to express himself and to hit the pacing better. And so that was something that I, that wasn't, um, it just wasn't part of it. You know, it's too, the relationship was too new early on. And so I think there's a lot of that kind of stuff that really develops. And we, we talk about everything. I mean, he'll weigh in on a story issue and I'm happy to take the thought and I'll, I'll, I've taken a lot of his ideas and in turn, you know, I'm helping to say, well, I think this guy would would uh, would look better if this guy wasn't um, this emotion, but maybe had more of this emotion. So we really um, we're really collaborating. It's been a, it's been great. Yeah, I mean you've been um, very fortunate because you have a great idea. You are at the right place at the right time, and the good fortune is that you were teamed up with Giovanni because I, there's plenty of books I've read where I was really excited about the property or the concept and the writer. And then the artists that they were teamed with, it, it did seem like things were being phoned in in some cases and it just wasn't quite enough to elevate the story and it kind yeah. of really dragged it down. But in this case, no, we've got a really good matchup of the writer and the artist and you can see it. I mean, you, we can see that your communication with the artist is very good and vice versa. I mean, it's, it's yeah. all, it shows in all the work and you made a very good point about and I didn't think about this way, is that he's always had a reference point for a lot of the things he was drawing because they were licensed properties. Um, you know, they were pulp characters. And in this case, he had a chance to create from scratch everything working with you. So yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's great. Even, and you really don't even realize the, the degree because, yes, he's creating Iceman suits. He's creating characters. He's creating that stuff. But you know, to give you a taste, you know, we talked about what is the infrastructure look like. And we went, okay, well, there's going to be lots of air conditioning units. So when we're outside and we see a street, maybe we'll see air conditioning units lining the, lining above all the shops and stuff like that. And you see that in, uh, on the first page and you see that a couple other times. And then he's got a, uh, we decided there's no plants. 
you know, there's no plant life. So he's got to keep that consistent. And, and, and how does he show the soil? Does he show it? He, I think I remember him talking about it. It was going to be cracked. The sun is baking the concrete. So there's going to be lots of crack. It's going to be feel very arid. I mean, he's coming up with, um, descriptions for everything, you know, and, and none of that exists and, and he's creating it all and then weaving it through in addition to all the other things that an artist does. So I think it's a, it's, it's a challenge that he poured himself into and, and, uh, and yeah, it's, a, it's a lot of fun to collaborate with an artist and world build. That's really what it is. I'm trying to recall, did he actually uh, color the book too? No. Okay. We we started with a, a colorist Betsy Gonya, who uh, then left uh, right at the very end of the first issue, and so another colorist, Chris Northrup, came on board, and he did the rest of uh, uh, of it. Okay, because it's yeah. working really well. I mean, just looking at the colors, I can feel yeah. the heat radiating yeah. off the page. You know, it's like the hottest hot day in August I can remember is what it feels like only 10 times worse <laughs> yeah I love it it's great I mean it had to feel it, it you had to have that right if you didn't have that if you looked at it and you said okay the story is cool and the inks are impressive but doesn't feel doesn't feel hot it doesn't feel like that it, it wouldn't have hit so it just goes to show you how all every artist you know colorist everything is it's you need it. You need that to, to, to deliver. And, uh, yeah, uh, Betsy came up with a really strong palette. Chris came in and, um, and took it to a whole new level and just killed it for the whole first arc. And, uh, yeah, he was great. It didn't jar me the difference in colors from issue one to issue two. Everything is yeah. very, and, and I guess when people see the trade, they're going to see how seamless that is. Yeah. I mean, that was, that was important. You know what I mean? I, 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 couldn't have imagined having it be abrupt. It would have really, really uh, been a shame. You want it to be a seamless experience. So uh, yeah, Chris, Chris had a, a fine line to walk between uh, matching what what we had done in one and then taking it through and and making it his own. And and he did just that. So yeah, yeah. The, the way Image does their their books, um, you know, for their creators is they keep the teams together. So there's a, a build-in hiatus of a couple of months for the first trade, and then you move on to the next series, yeah. um, the next arc. So that really helps it hang all together. And I think for the readers, it makes it far more enjoyable than a, a abrupt shift. Yeah. What kind of involvement is there from editorials? I know they give you a lot of free reign and image versus some other companies where there are, you know, company-owned properties or licensed yeah. properties you have to deal with. You want also, I'm collaborating with Top Cow. And, mm -hmm. um, so top cow is, um, there's a few, uh, for those who are listening who don't know, and they're just like, wait, eclipse is what image It's top cow. What is that? This is there's image direct, I guess. That's just image. And people sometimes publish through image. And then there are a couple of companies, um, that kind of sub publish and then publish through image. And so walking dead, for example, is done through skybound. And Skybound does Walking Dead and does several other books through uh, Image. And Mark Silvestri, one of the founders of uh, Image, his company is Top Cow. And they've done lots of things, Witchblade, Darkness, a whole bunch of stuff. And uh, they were the ones that uh, signed on to, to do Eclipse with me. And uh, so I've worked primarily with Top Cow um, in terms of the editing process. And uh, yeah, Top Cow's approach is they give creators a ton of freedom and a ton of flexibility, and they're kind of there 
when you need them. And so they were there to, to guide me and answer questions for sure and help me through the process, specifically the production process of, of getting it all put together. But in terms of the storytelling, they were very um, – they gave me a lot of freedom, which was just awesome. Um, they were they were they saw I had a vision. They supported it. They were on board with the concept. They liked what was coming in, and so I got a lot of freedom, which was great. And the first issue did really well. I mean, Diamond put it out had delivered like twelve thousand over twelve thousand copies. That was the initial order for number one, yes. and then almost immediately you're in second printing. That's right. That's right. And. Uh, it was also crazy, too, because some of the press that came out the first week, I mean, we were on, we were just on one website after another. I mean, I, and some lists, like, it was, like, IGN's top five to buy, and it was, like, Star Wars, Walking Dead, and Eclipse, and I'm turning my head going, what? You know? <laughs> wow. Great company. So That's crazy. <laughs> so... Yeah, it was a surreal debut. There was a there was a lot of uh, excitement over it. I, I I don't know. I um I mean Giovanni has got us a a, a a a bunch of fans, and but I'm a no name. This is his first uh, thing like this, so uh, something hit. People like the idea, I guess, and it and it and uh, I really am appreciative of that. And that, correct me if I'm wrong, but that went into a third printing too, didn't it? The first issue. No, the first oh, okay. issue, yeah, just two printings of the first issue. And then the second issue, uh, the one and two both sold out at Diamond pretty much, uh, but they, they opted not to do a second printing of number two, which is actually, I think, pained a lot of uh, collecting. There's a lot of fans out there that, are, that can't find two and constantly hit me up going, where do I find two? Um, and then, and then uh, three and four, and that's the end of the arc. But now the trade's coming out, so people uh, – who read one and loved it and then i know i mean i've done this a ton of times too you buy a one and then you wait to see uh for the trade to come out so uh it'll be exciting to to let people have a whole chance to read all four now with the trade out and that's why it's so important to pre-order your books yeah you never know i mean if it looks good you think well there'll be plenty in the shop don't count on that because when they're gone sometimes that's it they're gone um i mean i've had i've seen books sell out before i get to the store on a wednesday yeah, I mean, it's especially important for the the kind of tier I'm at. I mean, if you're reading something like an Ed Brubaker or a Rick Remender or a Rebirth or something like that, yeah, that's probably going to be in the shop. But even your other level image stuff, there's a whole bunch of um, of of kind of you know this this tier that I'm on and other image books that come out. I won't I won't. Uh, <laughs> I won't bother to, to pick, <laughs> but but there's a bunch that that you might go. Well, it's image, and uh, it got a lot of press, so surely it'll be there. And the, the reality is, it won't. It, it, they the the retailers buy a few, and the retailers um, the, the, if you didn't pre-order it and it goes, it goes. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. I've learned a whole. I have a whole new appreciation for pre-ordering after being a writer for sure. Yeah, books for the big two. I might be on the on the fence about a book and go, well, I'll, I'll wait till it comes out. But when it comes to like for Image or Dark Horse or Boom, if there's something that looks good, I just jump on it because yeah. I, I I do like the monthly experience. I like trades too. I mean, I, I'm kind of schizophrenic with my buying. I read some digital. I buy some trades. 
and I buy you know the monthly floppies. And um, it's important to buy the monthly floppies so the books get to trade. I mean, if you don't yeah. don't support a book, it's there's no guarantee it's going to be in trade. You really shouldn't trade weight. I mean, for me, like this series was so good, it belongs on the shelf. So I'm going to buy Thank it and you. trade. Uh, and there aren't many books that I, you know, and I will tell a creator or writer, you know what, that's shelf worthy. It's going on my shelf, and I want to read <laughs> it in one sitting. So, and that's one yeah. of the books. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah, um, yeah, you have to support the floppies. I mean, I used to uh, well, bef- before I, I was guilty a lot of times of reading number ones, and then saying to myself, well. Uh, the number ones are four bucks, so if I buy four of them or five of them, that's sixteen or twenty dollars. But I can go get the trade for ten or fifteen, so I'm going to save a few dollars. The problem is your dollars uh, matter to the support of the book, and so you almost are missing an opportunity to be far more influential than you realize. You can actually join the 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 more. Uh, true fan readers out there who are who are doing just what you do Chris who say no this one deserves to be on the shelf and, and you are using your dollars to support the floppies and ensure that that um, it, it gets more attention so um, yeah it, and fans can be very influential if they want to be just by reading a book and buying the floppies this is your first comic book, but it's not your first writing gig. I mean, tell us about your experience because you've worked as a screenwriter for both TV and film. Yes, uh, I uh, I went to school for it. I mean, I, I've I grew up reading comics, so first off, I've always loved comics. People always say to me, "So you're a screenwriter? So you're you're not what you're not into comics?" I'm going, no, no, no. Look, <laughs> I'm I grew up reading comics, but it didn't occur to me that you could write comics. It it just some people figured it out, and I'm jealous of those people that came out of high school going, hey, I could be a comic book writer because it just didn't occur to me. To me, I was like, if I want to tell stories, it's got to be film and TV. And so I went that route all the while reading comics, naively realizing that I could be one of those guys. Uh, And I went to school for it. I went to USC film school and I came out and I have existed in in Hollywood. Uh, I mean, I'm literally right here in Los Angeles doing a whole bunch of lots of specs, lots of uh, assignments and pitches and gigs. And there's this whole world that I don't know that everybody realizes where writers can make a few bucks here or there and you get projects on the shelf. But the, the, the true gem is to get to production and, you know, you're just in development. You're just, uh, and so that's where I've kind of been living. So I've written a ton for the past 10 years and uh, collaborated with uh, a bunch of different producers and gotten some pitches and and put some stuff on the the shelf here and there, but uh, nothing that's gone. And the whole time I w- uh, was just uh, plugging away, but it was kind of maybe like ten years ago that I started to uh, realize, wait a minute, um, what's going on in comics is really. Uh, branching out. I think also that was kind of a big influence too for me because I grew up reading superhero stuff, you know? Uh, and then when I, you know, in the mid two thousands, when I started to realize that what was going on in the image revolution and, and so many titles coming out that were beyond, uh, capes and, uh, and doing so many different interesting things, I was like, Oh, this is, this is really cool. I could tell that was when I realized I could write stories uh in comic books that would appeal to me and so 
I've been pursuing it for a long time and then, you know, finally uh, found some opportunity. Um, but, you know, the storytelling was always with me um, for, for a long time. And Zach, what were some of the comics that you read growing up? What were some of the ones that were your favorites? I mean, I was, you know, Marvel stuff, mm-hmm. X-Men, Wolverine. Uh, I think I did uh, some G.I. Joe, a lot of G.I. Joe. Uh, I, w- I started to branch out and do stuff like Spawn. I really got into – I remember a friend got me into Spawn, and it was different, and I loved it. It was so cool. I think I did – I think there was another one, the, the Max. I think I did the Max too. Um, and then I kind of went off to college, and uh, I always make this joke. I, I kind of was like uh, – I didn't want to be uh, geeky. I was trying – you know, I, the thing is back then, geeky wasn't cool. Right. So, <laughs> so, right. so when I went to college, I was like, wait a minute, I want to, you know, I don't want to be stuck playing, uh, video games and, and reading comics. I want to branch out. And so I kind of put the comics down for a short minute. And then when I came back to La- to Los Angeles to pursue film and TV, I started to get back into it. And I started reading, you know, why the last man and queen and country and some Warren Ellis stuff and started going, wow. Uh, I remember, uh, I think runaways is on its way, but I think runaways was just coming out and I started to get into comics a lot more then and kind of, um, but it was really some of the image stuff, um, that was really getting me excited about comics. And this is like 12 years ago, you know? And so, uh, that was when I started to, to, connect to it in an adult way. And so I had a hiatus kind of in college. Um, and, and my relationship with comics and, and as a kid was, you know, very, you know, there was Spider-Man and there was probably a few Supermans and Batmans in there. It was all very, you know, I wasn't into some of the complex stuff like, uh, Watchmen or, uh, uh, Alan Moore. Uh, you know, I found all that stuff later. For me, the landscape of comics keeps getting better and better. I mean, oh, it's yeah. just uh, it's just maturing more and more every year. I just every year that I look at what's come out, I'm more impressed by the overall landscape, which which is like I get so excited just to be a part of it because I'm also a huge fan of it. You know what I mean? So uh, it is a surreal experience to go to the shelf and see that there I am between you know, Glitter Bomb and Seven to Eternity and uh, uh, Cannibal and Moonshine and all these great uh, books that are coming out from Image and there's Rebirth and all this great stuff and uh, and then there's Eclipse. So <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's awesome. But uh, but uh, yeah, it, there's a ton of great comics out there, and a lot, a lot of them are becoming movies. And do you think? And I. Don't want to jinx anything, but do you think that maybe someday, perhaps, Eclipse could come to the big screen or to a streaming or something like that? Because you are a screenwriter. Yeah, uh, I think that is very, very possible, Chris. Uh, we'll we'll just have to wait. I but, would love uh, to see that. Uh, yeah, I would too. Um, I I think it would make a great TV show, but uh, and I wouldn't be offended if they wanted to do a movie, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it would be pretty cool. We'll just have to wait and see. Um, just knock on some wood for me, huh? Absolutely. And for those of you who didn't buy the book when it came out, shame on you. You missed an opportunity. <laughs> but it's all good. It's out it's now. All, it's, that's right. The Go trade. check it out. The, the trade's coming out. Yes. Just know it's, uh, 
it's never too late. And uh, the trade's right there. You can check it out. And then we're doing a whole nother arc, five through eight, and uh, five hits in March. So uh, that's a real uh, nice thing. You can get the trade, and then um, you don't have to wait. You can go right into another uh, another four issues. Yeah, that's the great thing about it. You get that trade. And it's nine ninety nine is the yeah. uh, first trade. So it's a great jump on price, get caught up. Yeah. Yeah. Next one comes out. Now, it, it went from, I think it was supposed to be, now, I don't know, I'm going to have this incorrect, but I thought it was a limited series and then you got the green light to go as an ongoing series because I don't think it was announced initially as an ongoing series. Was no, it? it was announced as a four-issue miniseries mm-hmm. and then and then after issue one's debut, uh, you know, basically Top Cow and I spoke and I had more story to tell and uh, they said, yeah, let's keep it going. Just keep going with it. So, uh so now we're rolling into five through eight, and uh, and we'll see. Uh, I I have more to tell with it. You know, it's kind of it's an interesting thing um, doing. Epi- I mean, it's episodic storytelling is really what it is. And um, I mean, I, I I guess there are some comic book storytellers who come in, and they're they know it's going to be finite. They know they're doing mm-hmm. four issues, or they know they're doing six issues, and that's it. There's really nothing else to tell. They're going to kill everybody off at the end. It's over. It's said and done. Someone comes and says, we want more. They'd say, I'm sorry. That's all there is to tell. But if you go into it thinking of it like you could have more to tell, it's very episodic like television. And it's like season to season. You tell a season and then you see if there's going to be another season. And then you tell another season and you see if there's going to be another season. And so it's it's a very interesting uh, challenge for I think as a storyteller to approach it, you've got to tell a compelling story in four issues. You got to resolve it enough, but at the same time leave something more to go if there's that opportunity. So, um, so I've I've been learning the ins and outs of that, but it's uh, but it's been a lot of fun. So yeah, when I went into issue one through four, I was planning one through four, and then uh, when it hit, there was just enough time to tweak it in a way that I would be able to, to truly carry it a little bit longer. And so for the, if you pick up the trade, there's a resolution to the end of it, but there's also some things left unresolved and that's what I get to explore as the book continues. And you're just scratching the surface of this world because fans of Walking Dead know it's a big world and you're seeing bits and pieces of it here and there. Sometimes you're in Georgia and on spinoff series, you're out in California, Mexico, your series, you're in one location right now. You've got a whole world to play with if you wanted to. Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I would love the opportunity. Um, you know, I have lots of ideas. I mean, I one thing I do like. I mean, I do like staying in the world of New York. I mean, it, um, the next arc explores a little bit beyond the city's borders, but it's still the area. And for me, one of the the more fascinating things to play with is um, exploring time, looking at, um, what happened in the past and, and kind of, uh, um, looking at the depth of, of the past of the flare and the, the, the things that have gone on in the city and how that complicates the events in the present. Um, so, uh, there's some flashbacks throughout the story that kind of reveal things. I like doing that kind of stuff too. Um, building mysteries and then paying them off about what happened in the past. And you have a lot of characters to explore too. Yeah. I mean, you've really, you focused on David and some other ancillary characters, but there's a lot more you can build from there. It's, it's still a very much a character driven story too. Yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. Uh, we're, we're, we're doing some of that in five through eight and, uh, hopefully we'll get the opportunity to keep doing it. It, it, It's all looking very positive right now. So, uh, but we'll, but we'll see, but, uh, yeah, there's a lot from the characters to the world. Um, you know, one thing that I, I found, I didn't, I had hoped that it was there and then, and then, you know, it, it came out is that there's kind of a built in theme to this situation. You know, you, you living in a world where the sun has turned into a monster, um, it creates a lot of different dilemmas for different people and how would each person respond? And I think that's what allows you to take a look at it and say, you've got a lot of story to tell because the dilemma is so ripe with conflict and it's such an interesting thing to ask yourself well what what would you do if you lived in a world where the sun would burn you alive how would you react i think that's something that walking dead tapped into so nicely you know you 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 could come and say well okay i mean when they changed and did the spinoff the spinoff didn't work because it was a different city the spinoff worked because it was different characters and we got to see new characters experience this dilemma all over again in a different way than Rick and his friends had experienced it. And so that's, it was really the, the dilemma of how would you handle a zombie apocalypse, um, that, that really was such, so ripe with conflict. And so, yeah, I'd like to think that Eclipse has some of, some of that in it, that there's a, a baked in dilemma to the, to the situation that, you could keep exploring lots of different characters and, and so hopefully I'll get the chance. <laughs> Let's <laughs> hope so. Then that would be nice. Let's talk a bit about your teaching experience. Uh, you have taught screenwriting at yeah. the International Academy of Film and TV and that's based in the Philippines. That's right. Were yeah. you actually yeah. in the Philippines teaching? Yeah, I lived in the Philippines for one year. Uh, Manila's the capital and mm-hmm. I lived in the Los Angeles of the Philippines, which is Cebu. It's the second largest city it's a little less me- uh, metropolitan. Uh, I've been out of USC for a couple of years, and uh, a friend of mine called me up, uh, and uh, she was working over there. And they had built a there was a company uh, that was doing film production, and they were looking for a writer. And then, in addition to that, there was a film school attached to it, and the film school was international, and meaning that they were getting students ages 20 to 50 uh, from all over the world, Africa, Australia, Germany, Russia, England, Brazil. I mean, you name it. There was a studio, Japan, Tokyo, China. There were studios. uh, I mean, there were kids from all over and and students from all over. And uh, so, yeah, I came and uh, lived in the Philippines for a year. I was writing projects for the company that mostly ended up on the shelf, but I was also uh, uh, teaching and uh, teaching writing. Uh, most of the students were doing short films, but I was teaching them the basic principles for features and for television. Um, basically, most of the education that I learned at USC, I was sharing. I've heard it said often that you really don't know something until you teach it. And as a teacher, you really have to know the subject well. Uh, did you find that to be the case that you you developed your skills more as you taught others, and did you learn anything from them while you were teaching? That's good questions, Chris. Uh, laying into me here. Let's see. Uh, <laughs> I did I learn more? I think that you reinforce what you know by discussing it. 
Um, I think a lot of times there's these principles and and things that you uh, if you stop talking about writing and you just write, if you just sit in your cave and you wake up every day at your keyboard and you just write, even if you knew it all, there's the danger that you'll it will the 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 concepts that you're the the tricks strategies the all the important language that you really need to be uh, proficient it, it'll fade. I mean, you know, successful athletes who are on a team who are working out and training every day, they're surrounded by other individuals who are speaking the language to them. They're they've got teammates, they've got coaches, they've got partners. They they um, I'm talking about professionals who are who are doing this for a living. And so they're constantly speaking the language, and that reinforces what they know. And so I think teaching fulfills that. I don't think that that's the only outlet. I think there are other things like writers' groups and writers' communities and other ways to uh, to do it. But definitely teaching is, I, I, I think, was a way for me to keep fresh on the fundamentals and the principles. Um did I learn anything from from my students? Um, I don't know. There's um, there's a lot of uh, talented storytellers out there. Um, there's a lot of storytellers who, who don't want to uh, listen to the inherent um, fundamentals of storytelling. I mean, there are certain fundamentals of storytelling that uh, I've accepted. You know, basics like there's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and stuff like that. So I was always very, um, I always pressed my my students to kind of buy in, buy accept the rules before they broke the rules. Um, but um, it's a fascinating experience teaching writing for sure. I'm, I mean, every uh, I did an exercise to show my students this, um, but it was fascinating to me as well. I would give them a scene and ask them all to write it. You know, it would be like a basic scene. You know, I think I'd, I'd maybe uh, play a scene from a movie or something like that. And then I – a non a non dialogue scene, right? Um, and then I would say, you guys write it. And it all come out differently. Like they all chose to express it in a different way. And you realize that there's so many different choices that writers are making line to line and moment to moment. Um, the point of view is really um, extremely important. Um, and I think a lot of times you forget that. So, um, that was probably one of the most, one of the biggest things I kind of took away from the experience is how many different ways there are to tell a story. Now you took a gamble writing a comic book and of course you've been a, a gambler. Um, you are a gambler, uh, you're a professional yeah. poker player and you've been a professional. No, I'm, no? I'm not a professional. Oh, not professional? I'm just a, I'm just a poker nut. Uh, I play, I was a professional poker dealer. Okay. And uh, I would uh, get off the tables and, and uh, as a dealer and then turn right back around and sit down as a player and, and play the very guys that I had been dealing to, which I don't know if that was fair or not, but I did it. Uh, the, they allowed it, so I would do it. But I'd been a huge poker player for 14 years. Uh, I thought about going pro. I played a few tournaments, but I never could buy into the lifestyle 100%. So I'm just a... A diehard hobbyist. I play once a week in a home game, and uh, um, but yeah, I'm a big poker nut for sure. What is it about the lifestyle that uh, you're like? No, this is not for me. Oh, it's brutal. It's brutal. Um, 
this is a couple things. First off, day in, day out, sitting at the table. I mean, I love the game, but day in, day out, grinding, 8, 10, 12-hour days, just looking at hands, playing it. I think the, the thing you have to understand is there's a luck factor no matter how good you are. Sometimes you're just going to get unlucky. And poker is really about how you deal with good luck and bad luck. That's really what the game is all about long term. Do you get frazzled by bad luck or can you take it in stride and not tilt and survive, which I find very existential. Um, But it's brutal. And to think about going through a month or two months or a year where you just – it wasn't coming your way and you had to wait for the luck to come your way. Uh, I, 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 there's, there's, I don't like having, I mean, I guess I'll, it's tricky, right? Because then you could look at any job and you could say, but wait, isn't there a luck factor to anything? And there's a timing factor to anything in life. And uh, what's the difference? And uh, that's true. So I don't know. Um, at the time, uh, I I tried doing it and I found it just hard to accept that day in and day out. It, I, you know, I think if you ever watch it on television, it's very glamorous uh, to see a, a tournament. It's super exciting and it's super fun to play a home game. But the concept of having that be your job and you go to this casino. Casino, by the way, that is also like a racetrack and it's kind of seedy and it's kind of divey. And a lot of these guys are like, they're playing with their pensions or their rent money and you're trying to take it. And, um, it's not as glamorous as it's cracked up to be. So there were a lot of factors. I just couldn't buy into it professionally, but I love the game. Love the game. Yeah. I guess if you got into it that much on a professional basis, you, you wouldn't love the game anymore because it would become, (laughs) it would become a job, you know, it wouldn't be a a chance for you to escape and do something different that you enjoy doing. It just becomes, You'd have to worry too much about how am I going to make a living doing this now? Totally, totally. Whereas just to be able to play once a week and have a good time doing it, yeah, that's awesome. So, yeah, um, yeah, probably would have ruined it for me. Would have ruined it for me for sure. Now, you also consider yourself a futurist and a science enthusiast. So are there there books on your nightstand that you're reading? Are there certain uh, journals that you keep up with? Or how how do you go about uh, researching things and keeping up with the latest uh, developments in science? Oh, yeah. I mean, I like – I try to follow a lot of uh, science stuff on Twitter. Uh, You know, I I, I can't remember all the different publications or websites that scroll – hit me up and Facebook too – and then anytime I'm researching a new idea, I'll go and uh, I will read books on it. I read books about solar flares and stuff about the sun, and I read books about um, um, that stuff and for eclipse. I'm trying to think of what else. I, uh, I mean, I've read all sorts of stuff. I love like Michio Kaku and, and uh, some of the other futurists out there. I love seeing about futurist developments. I just think it's really fascinating to think about where our society will be in 50 years or a hundred years. And, uh, I'm always, uh, I always have an appetite for that. It's hard in the past six months. I mean, I, I, I've, um, since Eclipse premiered in, in September, a lot of my, um, time has been spent trying to read as many comics as I can because it all changed for me. I mean, I, when I was starting to do Eclipse, I was a fan. Mm-hmm. In the moment that I became published, I felt 
a, a different connection with the medium. Now I'm reading it as a colleague, right? So now I read, I, I, I'm trying to absorb as much as I can in, in terms of comics, which is hopefully fleeting. Hopefully I'll, I'll be able to f find more opportunity to, to expand back out to some of the other things I like to read. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I love reading about science stuff and, and geeking out. I mean, uh, everyone was watching the Super Bowl, and I mean, which was my God, what a crazy game! <laughs> crazy game, so intense, like probably you know one of the best Super Bowls in a very very long time. But when those drones lit up the sky, oh, in the Super Bowl halftime show, did you see this, Chris? I didn't see that. I, I saw an article about it, but I actually didn't see that. Now oh, I'm gonna have to go back and see that. You got to go back and see this. And for anybody out there who was who was saw this, you know what I'm talking about. Like, so there's Lady Gaga, Chris. She's singing away. She's opening up, and you notice that there's lights in the sky, and they're like forming were a word or two, and they're forming a flag, and they're moving around. But you don't know what they are because all you can see are lights in the sky. But it's not video projection. And it's not fireworks. And I, I turn to my wife and I'm like, those are drones. <laughs> and she's like, yeah. I'm like, those are a couple hundred drones. And she's like, yeah, I've seen that like with lighting boards. I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. There's about two to 300 drones flying in unison. This is hive mind stuff. They've all been programmed to know where each other are in the sky so they don't crash in. These are... They're in 3D space, and they're all coordinating multiple flight patterns to take different locations in pure 3D space. They all launched from different places. I mean, there's some crazy science going on there. And uh, the fact that that happened, and we're all just like, woo, Lady Gaga half them. So I'm like, <laughs> no, that stuff, you're going to see this in 5, 10 years. This is first off, you're going to see the, light, the, the drone light show over and over and over again. But think about the military applications. Think about the humanitarian applications, the fact that we can now program drones, 200, 500, 1,000, 10,000 to all fly in unison in different patterns. That's crazy. That's sci-fi. You know? I, I had no idea that they had come that far with it. Me they neither. they were able to do that. I know. I mean, that's the, to me, we're watching it and everyone's like, cool drones. And everyone's like, gee, that was something drones... But I know I didn't know that existed, and I know I, I remember reading about uh, doing like AI hive mind research where they'd want to like take fifty bots and make them all collaborate on a course together. But I didn't realize they had flying drones coordinating by the hundreds into each having its own flight pattern and each accomplishing a different goal. I mean. That's the kind of stuff that I geek out and I go, I don't know if there's a story here, but that's fascinating to think about the futuristic implications for our society of drones suddenly being able to do this. I mean, uh, that's always been the argument against flying cars is mm -hmm. that you have this. How would you how would you uh, have the space to how would you have something that they'd they'd, they'd uh, crash into each other, you know, so. Uh, I like geeking out on stuff like that, on that kind of science and futurisms. It is mind-blowing how far we've come. Uh, yeah. It's a very exciting time to live. I mean, just in my own lifetime and just over the past couple of decades, geez, just with the advent of the iPhone, look how far that's come. It's all moving very fast. I mean, uh, think about things like Twitter. 
Yeah. Twitter, Twitter wasn't around 10 years ago, was it? No. No. So I don't think so. It's, it's changed a- news. It's changed politics. It's changed everything. Yeah. I mean, would uh, listen, without getting political, purely talking about technology, mm-hmm. how would the election played out with, without social media, without Twitter? You know, uh, it was a huge factor, huge. And revolutions are coordinated. Protests are coordinated now on Twitter. Yes. So, yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about. That's the fun thing about thinking about. I mean, I love the science fiction space, and I and I intend to stay in it a lot. And it's really fun to think about uh, where's the world going, and what if this, what if that, because that's the best science fiction is that you go, yeah, that's not that implausible. That's very possible. Um, you know, Eclipse is certainly uh, a little level of fantasy, but then there's a truth in in our relationship with the sun and how quickly that's changing, and there's a truth in our relationship with our environment, how quickly that's changing. And I don't know if the sun is going to explode on us and turn into a deadly monster, but uh, I, I do think it's possible that as time goes on, we find it harder and harder to go outside. And uh, so... You know, that's that's the cool thing about science fiction is it, it it's it taps into things in our lives. That's what I love about it. So what comics are you reading now when you have the time? Yeah, I mean, I read um, most of the science stuff that's coming out of Image. I'll read anything Rick Remender, um, uh, anything Mark Millar. Uh, I'll read Ed Brubaker. You know, I love uh, uh, Kill or Be Killed. I'm enjoying that. Uh, you know, I like uh, uh, a bitch planet, or um, uh, you know, anything that's science fiction that's that, that's saying something is pretty cool to me. Um, I mean, good lord, I've got a, a giant re- like the. I don't. I'm sure comic book fans can relate to this. The the hierarchy that is what you uh, read because you don't just go. You buy. You go and you go and like you go to the store with like a list of what you're gonna buy. But then you like buy half of the list and then you bring home, which is still for me like $75 in comics <laughs> a week. Yeah. And then you bring home that and then you sift through it and you're like, okay, that was what I bought. But what I'm going to read first are these five things. And then like, you know, uh, but your read pile is a whole separate thing because your read pile is existing from weeks and weeks. So I'm always like getting back to things that like, you know, some things I'm just getting into, um, that, that came out a few months ago. Um, but I love, I love a lot of the sci-fi that's coming out. Descender. I don't do a lot of Marvel or DC anymore. I'm, I'm much more into trying something. Um, if I'm going to try something different, you know, I'm going to try glitter bomb or I'm going to try, um, something unique. I'm looking at my shelf here and seeing, uh, uh, what else is a uh, paper girls, you know, mm-hmm. something that's, uh, that I hear is getting raped, monstrous. You know, I want to, I want to um, see what is out there. But um, a lot. I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely an image guy. I mean, I'm, I read a ton of image. I'm predominantly image, and then occasionally I'll, I'll branch out and read something from Boom, Arcadia, or uh, Lantern City, um, or. Uh, something else that's uh you know i but i don't do a lot of the franchise i don't do transformers or or any of the ip or i I pretty much stay true to original stuff that's that's what i'm interested in 
Yeah, I, I could get that because I, I buy some books from the big two, not a great deal. Um, and part of it is because a lot of them tend to be interconnected and my budget can only go so far and I only have really budget of so much time to read. So the self-contained stories that kind of stand alone in their own universe um, tend to work better for me like a lot of the image books. But uh, I think you know, as I read more, and you probably have this too, I'm starting to get more creator um, – oh, I don't know what the word is like – you know, I want to read um, Sean uh, Murphy's Batman. You know that 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 because I loved his work and and so many other things. So like that's at the top of my list. Or you know, I really uh, I liked Scott Snyder's Batman. That was something I picked up. You know, and I was and uh, so to me, if it's a if it's a creator that I've followed somewhere else and I'm a big fan of their work, oh, yeah. and then they're doing something, then for sure I, I'd love to do it. Um, it's just that I picked up so many um, where, you, where it just seems like it's um, it's hit or miss or it's phoned in in terms of uh, the top two. So it, it, to me, it's very creator dependent. Um, whereas through some of the other indie publishers, if I don't know the creator, sometimes they can still surprise me and, and produce an amazing original story. So um, um, it depends. But... Oh man, the read pile is so high. I know. It's so, it's so high. I have the same problem. My read pile of my floppies, my read pile of my trades, they just keep stacking up. But I get to them. You know, I just sometimes. Yeah, I get to them too. Yeah, for sure. Well, then I also get the thing where I'll, I'll say, okay, I'm gonna. There's a there's a series I want to get. You know, like I'm trying to think of uh, something that I'll go. Okay, I, I want to finally get into that one. I've never I never got into. Well, I ne- like I I uh, I never got into cr- Criminal, uh, Brew Baker's Criminal. Oh yeah, yeah, great series. I, but I read, just read uh, Killer Be Killed, mm-hmm. and, I, and I was just like, oh, why have I not done Criminal yet? I need to go read more Brew Baker. This guy, like, Killer Be Killed. I, I don't know. I really love the the smallness of the story, and uh, it's so. Um, I don't know. There's something very intimate about it that I really liked. And so I, I was very curious to go read. And, the, you know, he's also his name's on Westworld, which is yes. mm-hmm. which has got its own it, which is awesome and problematic as a series. But but I enjoyed it. And uh, I've met people who, are, who who didn't enjoy it. And I get that, too. But uh, so, yeah, I go back and I'm like, oh, I got to go get criminals. So now criminals at the top of my list. I got to go read that. So uh, and then. <laughs> It's a never-ending cycle, and then I'll be like, "Oh, Sean Phillips, he's an amazing artist. Where's what? What? What else can I read of his?" I always like turned onto another thing. Yeah, I do follow creators like that too, and I I did start reading Criminal as trades. You know, I read Killer Be Killed and some of his other uh, series as well. Um, the Fade Out, yeah. so I read that. So I had to go back and start reading Criminal, and I started those advertising in the back of the book. So the advertising's working, guys. Uh, it's working yeah. very well. <laughs> it's sucking me in. <laughs> yeah, well, and then there's also that thing happens too. I mean, this is the same thing I remember. Uh, this happened to me on Sopranos. I never watched Sopranos because it, by the time I started to hear about it, it was like four seasons in. Mm-hmm. And it feels too overwhelming to go into. The same thing's happened to me with The Americans. Everyone raves about The Americans. I'm like, I know. I got to watch The Americans. But it, I, I, it's fine. you're asking me to go watch 50 hours of television. It's going to take me a minute, okay? <laughs> right. So 
you know, there's some series out there that someone will be like, you haven't read Criminal yet? And I'm like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know, but there's a few issues out there, right? I, I got to start at the beginning. It's going to take me a little time. So, you know, but you, I, you people go back to them and start, start reading from the top. So uh, that's the cool thing about comics is they're there. You can go and start in on it at any point. Are you going to have a chance to get out onto the convention circuit this year? Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to actually try to hit it pretty hard now that I've got uh, one trade and, and then by April, May, June, by, by I guess July or August, I'll have uh, two, the uh, second Eclipse trade out too. So yeah, I'm right off the bat, I'm going to be in California here. I'm doing East Bay Comic Con uh, this weekend. And then the following weekend, I'm doing uh, Long Beach Comic Con, and then I'm I'm 50/50 on Emerald City. I gotta wait on that one, but I'm gonna do C2E2. I'm gonna do Comic Palooza. I'm doing uh, San Diego Comic Con, and that's just a start. So we'll see what else I can uh, cook in there. Um, but I'm I'm looking around. If you're a convention uh, and you're listening, hit me up because I'm. Uh, I'm I'm ready to travel. So, and if you're a fan and you're looking for me, then uh, then hopefully I'm coming nearby you. So come say hi. But coming up soon, and I think it's uh, the fifteenth, the trade paperback's coming out of Eclipse. Yeah. Nine ninety nine, first four issues, not to be missed. And if you missed them the first time, now's your chance to jump on board and be all set for issue number five, which would come out then. Um, I take it in March. You got it. And then it's March, April, May, June for the next four. And then they always take a little break. And so uh, July's the break and August is trade two. And uh, right now we're focused on the trade and on, uh, on the, the beginning of the next arc. Excellent. Well, Zach, thanks so much for joining me on this podcast. And uh, good hey. luck with the series. I'm looking forward to more. Hey, thank you, Chris. You, uh, you've supported it from the beginning. So uh, a huge thanks to you. And this is a... Your your podcast here is a uh, is relatively new, right? It is. Um, I started uh, right after Black Friday. Awesome. Uh, well, yeah, uh, yeah, you got a listener here. I'm super excited for it. Congratulations. Oh, thank you so much. Mainly, I'm talking to writers. I talk to writers and artists, but generally, I tend to get the writers or writer artists. And uh, it's it's just fascinating, not just the project that they're working on, but the passion that they put into it, how they went about the process, how they got to where they are and where they're going. Uh, to me, that's been the podcast I've always enjoyed the most. Yeah. So rather than me sitting here doing reviews, which is nothing wrong with that, and I do them occasionally, really just like my opinion and my recommendation, but others do that better than me. My, <laughs> I'm just here to facilitate the conversation and give someone a platform to talk about their book and hopefully other people hear about this and go out and buy it as well. Well, you're killing it too, so thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And that wraps up my interview with writer Zach Kaplan and his book Eclipse goes on sale on February 15th. You know, and like we talked about in the interview, if you want to jump on board and get started with the series, now's the perfect time because you can get the trade paperback for just $9.99, which is a great jumping on price. And then right after that, the next month starts issue number five, so you'll pick right up with the story. You don't have to wait. So uh, give it a shot if you haven't. I think you'll be glad that you did. Well, here at Creative Talks, I have a lot of great guests lined up in the coming months. I have some interviews already in the can that'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. So you can expect one podcast from me every week on Thursday, sometimes two a week, depending on who I have on the show and when their work's coming out. And I'll be teasing who those guests will be on my blog. You can find that at creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com, where I'll have a, at least once a week a blog, sometimes two or three times a week, 
Uh, occasionally I will post recommendations of books that I've read. It's not a review, not a thumbs up, thumbs down, five stars, four stars, but just what I liked about it and why I think it's really worth reading. So from time to time, I'll be sharing those. And again, they'll be at my website, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. If you have any feedback for me or want to make a few comments, you can reach me at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook. That's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook. And also on the Twitter, at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod on Twitter. I look forward to hearing from you, and I hope you look forward to hearing from me when I have my next guest coming up. And that episode is coming up early on February 14th, which is Valentine's Day. So until then, I'm Christopher Calloway for Creator Talks. Thank you.